This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series, Desperate, Vital Doctrine for All of Life from the Book of Ephesians. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Well, this is our eighth week now uh, spent in the book of Ephesians, and uh, there's a, I would like to go at a slower pace, uh, but there is benefit in taking large chunks at a time like this, because uh, you kind of get the bigger picture a little quicker, um, and, and perhaps even a better perspective flying a little bit higher. Uh, we're still going to go word by word, and uh, often, and certainly verse by verse through our time even today, uh, but... What Paul does for us here is he, he basically invites us to Magianos and we leave with the to-go box, okay? Uh, we will, there's a lot that he gives us here in this passage. Um, a lot to feast on. Uh, you know, the first three chapters, Paul, the, the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course, he gave us healthy, robust doctrine, orthodoxy. And now in chapter four, five, and six, he's serving up more of orthopraxy, how we're to now live in light of this beautiful doctrine that he's laid out for us. So he gets immensely practical. Um, and we're going to benefit, I think, from him being so helpful and, and practical here in these last uh, three chapters, uh, focusing our time today in chapter four, starting in verse 17. A lot of work. All right, let's focus, let's dig in, and, uh, and Lord will help us. Let's start in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. All right, that word do is literally walk. And so no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. The word now, all right, it presents a shift in his tone and direction in the way that he's addressing uh, the early church there in Ephesus. He says, now I say, and I even testify in the Lord as, as with a witness on a stand in a courtroom. Okay, so essentially, I solemnly swear before God and these witnesses that this urging that I'm about to present to you is not just me. This isn't just Paul. I'm not being angsty or feisty. Uh, This isn't original to me. I'm speaking in the presence of God towards you from God himself delivering this through me. All right, so this is not just my idea. This is from Jesus himself. And these Gentiles that Paul's referring to They're not the Gentiles there in Ephesus that would be reading this letter that was passed around. Those Gentiles would have been Christians. And so he's not using this Gentile in regards to race. He's using this Gentile as in the posture of their heart. He's he's saying, don't walk as the Gentiles who have yet to be redeemed. Don't walk as those. They're, they're, They're unregenerate. They're not born again. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. They're not in Christ. They're heathen, pagan, and unredeemed. They're Gentile of heart, so to speak. The Gentile that he was referring to in chapter 2 and 3 of his letter here to the Ephesians. And he's telling these young Christians that they must stop living the lifestyle of those who haven't yet been born again. He goes straight to their heart and begins by telling these Christians, he begins by saying, you must stop doing these things. Literally, no more. Ever. No more. No longer walk as, as they walk. 
And he tells them to stop walking like or living like. Stop going about life in the same way that the unregenerate people go about life and how they process reality. Those who do not yet have the Holy Spirit of God living in their hearts, they're walking merely in the futility of their minds. Don't walk as those people. You've been enlightened. This futility here is an emptiness. It's being incapable of producing what is necessary, incapable of grasping hold of what is desired. It's without aim. It's, it's a, there's a purposeless uh, bouncing from saving hope to saving hope, landing in disappointment. The futility of their minds, their beliefs, their, um, their ability to comprehend uh, why they do what they do. This is a summary that describes what it's like to be unredeemed and unregenerate, yet to be born again. And Paul doesn't hold back. He paints a very dark and heavy picture. And in doing so, he's illuminating the stark contrast between who they were and who they now are in Christ. He continues to unpack more of what this means by walking in the futility of their minds. He says in verse 18, they are darkened. They're unable to understand or perceive. They're incapable of grasping this. They're, they're darkened in their understanding, in their minds. They're separated. They're strangers from God. They're alienated from the life of God. That life of God echoes back to chapter 2 and verse 4 where we're told God has now made us alive together with Christ. We're made alive. This life of, of God. They're strangers and alienated to this life of God because of this unawareness, because of this ignorance that is in them due to their callousness of heart, a numbness, a dullness a callousness. They can't feel this hardness of heart. It's not that they're emotionally insensitive. He's speaking here of their sheer rebelliousness, their hardness of heart and resentment. You see, all this is because of our sin. This is what our sin has caused. This is where each of us are. Or at least this is where each of us have come from. The unbelievers aren't in the light. They may often feel as if they're enlightened. Uh, they may often feel like they're on the road to happiness. Yet the reality is that they are darkened in their thinking and they're limited in their experience of light, of life, of truth, of contentment, satisfaction, and joy. And this isn't all. Those who have yet to experience redeeming grace through Jesus are outside of Christ and they're alienated from God. And that is the worst of it. That is the worst of the situation with those who've yet to be born again. Friends, that is our greatest problem. That is our most significant need. We don't need to be made a little better. We don't need a little bit of improvement. We don't need to be a little faster and jump a little higher and be a little stronger. We have to be completely overhauled, born again, a new heart. We can't do this. We have to be reconnected with God, not a little better. We have to be reconciled with God. That is our greatest problem. Alienated from God is a result of sin. It's not the way it should be. That is not the way it should be. 
They are not to be outside of that relationship. That's not where they should stay. That's a result of sin. There's a better way. Friends, there's a better way. Jesus brought about a better way. He brought an escape from this darkness. He brought an escape from this numbness and separation. He brings the capacity to feel he, he gives the capacity to dream. He gives the capacity to experience this oneness with God, our creator. You see, the consequences of, of our sin and our alienation from God and this numbness to him are cataclysmic. It's a damning downward spiral. And he begins to unpack it even more for us in 19. They've become callous, again, dead to feeling. In the word literally, callousness here, it, it means the inability of experiencing shame. If you don't experience shame, in other words, it's saying you don't care. There's no concern. I don't care. I don't have to be ashamed of that. Callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality. This is immor immorality. This is uh, jumping from pleasure to pleasure. And they're greedy to make their way of life. They're, they're greedy to practice every kind of sexual filth, impurity. And there's a lot I want to say here about pornography and all that it steals and robs from mankind how it destroys community. It destroys the capacity of being able to relate to other men and other women. It totally skews us and just shipwrecks our capacity to feel. It makes us callous. And I want to say a whole lot more. There's a, a sermon coming specifically towards this awful epidemic of pornography. But for now, we have to keep going. He says they're greedy. They're unable to be satisfied. There's this unquenchable desire for more and more and more. And this is the direction that we're all running in. In other words, our natural bent is to pursue sensuality and every kind of impurity. And we can't help ourselves. We alone cannot discover freedom from the giving themselves up to these various passions. We can't help ourselves. Our sin runs so deep that we can't merely will it away. If I care enough, can I stop? Is there freedom if I clean myself up enough? If I try harder, if I try something else? Friends, none of this will work. We need something so deep and significant that we ourselves cannot do it. And we have to have help. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you might have read it. If not, I'll try to provide a summary here of a particular scene. It's a powerful image of the depth of our need to change and our utter inability of changing ourselves. The scene starts with Eustace, a terribly rebellious little boy. He's spoiled, and he's just come across large fortune. And he begins to think of all the new possibilities and pleasures that he can now enjoy, of all that's now possible. So he's dreaming about all that's possible and thinking through that, and he drifts off to sleep. Well, when he wakes up, Eustace is no longer a boy. He's a dragon. The outward manifestation of his inner greed, his inner selfishness. The gold bracelet that he had on his little boy arm was now constricting his dragon leg 
and the pain was piercing. It's terrible. But that wasn't the worst of it. Eustace realized that he was now cut off from humanity. He was isolated. He was alone. And he began to weep, large, hot, dragon tears. Well, in mercy and compassion, Aslan, the great lion, leads the the dragoned Eustace to a garden on top of a mountain and then to a well at the center of the garden. Eustace looks at the well and knows if he could just get into the water, the pain in his leg would be soothed. But Aslan says that he has to be undressed first. And after a moment of confusion, Eustace remember that he's a dragon and dragons can shed their skins like snakes. And so with his new dragon claws, he he begins to tear away at this dragon skin and he peels off a layer of this dragon skin. But then he realizes it's still there. So he peels off another nasty, scaly, rough layer underneath. And then another. After three layers, he realizes it's pointless. He'll never make himself clean or get rid of his pain or shed the nasty, ugly skin. Aslan the lion says, you will have to let me undress you. So desperate was Eustace. Even though he was fearful of Aslan's great claws, it was not enough to keep him from lying down flat on his back and letting Aslan do his work. Laying anxious there on the ground, here's what Eustace felt according to C.S. Lewis. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. And just as I thought, I, just as I thought I'd done it myself these other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much because I was still very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone away from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Pastor Tim Keller says about this, that the way to deal with guilt is not to avoid it, but to resolve it. Eustace not only realized he couldn't get his own skin off, but that only God can come and take your skin off. And to do this, you have to let him pierce deep. You must take all the guilt on yourself and stop blame shifting and take responsibility for what you've done wrong. No excuses, full in the face. Friends, have you ever looked your sin full in the face? Or do you run from it? Do you hope it's going to get better if you stop worrying about it? Do you think it's going to get better as you fix it yourself? Or do you see yourself in need? Do you see yourself in your sin? Do you see yourself in your brokenness? Do you see yourself there as the ugly dragon, nasty, snake-skinned creature, deep in this self-made misery, 
experiencing loneliness and fear? If so, know that because the grace of God, Jesus Christ, the Lion of Judah, he calls out to you today to join him in the garden that's built on the mountain and to the well of living water. And he can make you a new creature. creature. And he can, he can uh, give hopeless sinners a magnificent future. For me, this happened roughly nine years ago, where Christ tore through my flesh, a flesh that I could not pull off, and I tried so many times. But he's the one who turned my stone heart to flesh. And by grace through faith, in the blood of the lamb, I went from being a dragon to a boy. But have you experienced this? Have you experienced this transformation? Of course, we have setbacks. But for the Christian, the good news is the cure has already begun. And it's a cure that will be finished in God's timing. And when it's done, Christians will walk in a new garden, the city of God, to live with God, our creator, in his very presence. And we will drink from the river of true pleasure forevermore. This is the hope of the Christian. And Paul begins to take us in this direction. He tells the Christians that their new life isn't to be like their old life. Essentially, he tells them, you used to be dragons and walk and live like dragons, but not anymore. This is not who you are. See in verse 20, he's like, that's, that's not the way that you've learned Christ. That's, that's not it. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him that the truth is in Jesus. Being a faithful and good pastor, Paul unpacks how these Christians should have known and learned grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Verse 22, he says, put off, lay aside, put away the old self, which belongs to your previous way of life in line with your previous behavior and conduct, your former manner of life. It's corrupt, it's ruined, it's destroyed. Corrupt through these deceitful desires. Here I'm reminded of Hebrews 12, says, let us put away, let us put off, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And also of, of 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us with himself. So Paul's saying, put off the old man. The man marked with futility and corrupt unsatisfiable desires. That is not who you are anymore. You are being tricked. It's not you. Stop acting that way. It's not being true to who you are. Not being true to who you are. Now, Paul's Greek isn't easy here. And it's literally, he's saying this, that you were taught in him. Speaking of Jesus, you were taught in him. You were taught that the truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put off the old humanity, the old man, corresponding with your former manner of life. And you were taught to put on this new humanity, this, this new man. Okay, that's literally what he's getting at here. And he continues in verse 23, and become young again in the spirit of your minds. Become, become renewed in the spirit, the disposition, your attitude of your minds, your feelings, your reasoning. Put the old man and his practices and the, the things that he did for sinful pleasure and all those wicked pursuits. 
put those away. It's, it's not who you are. Put her away. Renew your minds and begin considering this new holy way of living, which has been made possible through Jesus Christ. And put on this new man. Put on the new self. Embrace this new humanity now that grace in Christ has made this possible. You see this in verse 24. Put on, literally clothe or wear or dress yourself. Put on the new self that's been brought into existence after the likeness of God. It's been created after the likeness of God. Holy, righteous, pure, you know, like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, so based on all this, therefore, having put away this deception, put away all these lies, put away all this uh, falsehood, let each one of you, speaking to the church, speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members of one another. Members, meaning we're, we're little parts of a greater whole. Speak the truth to one another. Falsehood was characteristic of the old man, the old self. And remember, you've put that away. So therefore, you've put away falsehood. Now, speak as the new man. Speak the truth without deception, without deceit. In other words, let each one of you individuals who make up a greater whole speak the truth to each of the other individuals of that greater whole so that the truth is known and shared and brought to bear on the greater whole. Don't mislead one another. We're one. If you mislead something of the one, you're causing division. You're causing separation. It's inevitable. So speak the truth to one another so that we can all continue to experience this unity. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. That doesn't give you permission for a temper tantrum, okay? That's probably one of the few verses that some of us have memorized because it kind of gives us permission to get mad. I'm, I'm not sinning, but I am angry, okay? Like that sort of thing. I've never, I have done that a lot, okay? But <laughs> it says, be angry and do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil, the message puts it this way. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. But still, I don't believe this was Paul's point entirely. Be angry and sin not is not an encouragement for righteous anger. So I do not think it's helpful to use this as the way it's commonly used. My, the one reason why I think that's true is because if you look in verse 31 of the exact same chapter, exact same passage of Scripture, some of those contexts is the same. Paul tells us that there's no anger that's appropriate. All anger is condemned. Chapter 4, verse 31. So what I think that's going here is I think Paul has us this passage as a written warning that if you become angry, tread lightly. If you become angry, beware. You are sitting 
at sin's door. You're very close to much trouble. That is what I believe Paul's getting at here. And he writes, don't go to bed angry. Now, I don't believe that you can work through all types of pain and disappointment in 12 hours. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Like, you know, if something happens at nine o'clock at night, he's not expecting you to get it resolved before midnight. Okay. And if you have something happen at 1145 at night, he's not expected to be resolved in a minute to five minutes. Right. I don't think that's his point. There's a greater principle here. Don't let pain and disappointment fester. Hear that again. Don't let pain and disappointment fester. Work to reconcile with one another. Reconciliation is the opposite of alienation. There is so much danger in not communicating when there's been confusion or hurt. Anger is alienating and divisive. And we, we often internalize our confusion, our pain, our disappointment. We internalize it uh, and we hope that it gets better. That doesn't go well. Two, uh, we will just kind of begin keeping a running log, probably mentally, a record as we seek to build a case that proves that what we felt like was true is actually true. So we're reading everything through this lens. Oh, they didn't text me back in 10 minutes. That's because she is mad at me. I knew this. And you begin doing this rather than going to each other in love and working through things. When we do this, we lay fertilizer on the garden of bitterness in our hearts and it changes us. But that's not all. It changes our church. And that's not all. It changes the way that we lead others towards Jesus that are in our lives. When we don't process disappointment, and when we don't arrive at the truth in confession with one another in community, we drift to being more divisive and even angsty. And church family, I really want you to hear me. I've seen many people over my years involved in church ministry, I've seen many people become eaten up alive and destroyed by not being honest early. They sit with it. Instead of going before there's bitterness that's just just mulling over and over and becoming this huge mountain when it was simply a little molehill, they keep it. When something was strange or off or weird or painful, they didn't address it for whatever reason, and it becomes a huge issue in their heart. Now, there's certainly a difference between whining when things don't go your way and when you truly need to discuss something. There's a lot of things that happen within the Christian community that aren't according to your preference. It's not according to my preference. And so we have to process this in terms of the greater good for the sake of the larger group. That's when we're dealing with preference. But then there's those things where you fear and perhaps have good reason to believe. You, you fear that there's been intentional deception. There's been deceit. There's been sin. And then, of course, there's all those things in between where you may feel slighted or overlooked, perhaps overworked and underthanked. We have to be open and honest with each other on these things. You see, perception is often reality. Therefore, we have to work through things together, not in isolation, to see whether these things are true or not. Arriving at confession, 
coming to prayer, bringing the gospel to bear, and then experiencing greater unity and a growing passion for Jesus Christ and his church. You see, family, when our identity is firmly established in Christ, we can be honest about our fears. We can be honest about uh, our fears in our relationships when we're, when we're living from our identity in Christ. When this is taking place, I can bring things into the light without too much concern of being made fun of or being rejected because I know that my identity is secure in Christ before God. So I can bring things out because I know I've been accepted in the greatest way possible. And when you're living out your identity, it actually enables greater strength in you to come forth where you can be more boldly uh, to confess and work through things within your church family and with others, with anyone really. But the enemy hates this. The enemy hates confession. He does not like it at all when we bring things into the light. It ruins his platform. It, it ruins his opportunity to use Paul's word. He no longer has his footing there. And this is when a lot of us begin to experience a lot of spiritual warfare. You see, we don't drift towards openness. We don't drift towards confession. We don't drift towards humility. We drift towards isolation. We drift towards silence. We drift towards internalizing things rather than bring them to bear in community. And my friends, this is dangerous. This brings about a much greater burden upon ourselves. And this brings division to the church family. Please hear me. Give no opportunity to the devil. There's not a relationship in this room that's met its maximum limit for confession, repentance, prayer, honesty, and humility. No relationship on earth that's experienced enough of those things. Let's practice these things. God will help us. He will bring about great unity in our mission, in our joy, and in our friendships when we believe him in this way. He is helping us, and he helps us even through Paul as he continues to unpack more of what this new self looks like in verse 28. So here's what this looks like, being honest in community. Let the thief no longer steal. Uh, the thief there is stealer. Let the steal, it's the same word for steal. Let the stealer no longer steal, but rather let him labor, let him work hard. Let him struggle. Let him become weary because of how hard he's working and providing a living. Let the thief no longer steal, but let's labor hard doing honest work with our own hands so that we may have something to share. You don't share unless you're in community. You don't share with yourself. Share implies community, that we may share with anyone in need, not just those who you deem as worth investing in with anyone. The emphasis is on the need, not who needs it. With anyone who is in need. That's not who you are anymore. Don't steal anymore. That's not in line with the lifestyle and thinking of the new man that you are in Christ. That's deception. And that destroys trust. It destroys community. You see, this new man is marked with integrity, with character, with honor, with, with honesty, and with Good ambition. Don't unnecessarily lean on others to provide what you with your own hands, with your own back, with your own minds can provide for yourself. And don't just work to cover your own needs. Go to bed tired 
as you've worked hard enough to provide for yourself and even for some others to have something. Work, not only to provide for yourself, but to provide for others who are in need within the body. Now, that's a gospel thought, right? That's the gospel. Jesus worked hard for us so that he could give to us, us, we who are in need. As we learn more and more what Christ has done for us, this can become more and more of our reflex as his spirit works within us. That is how we've learned Christ. That is Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit working within us. The gospel must serve as being our proper motivation in this. He continues in verse 29. Let no corrupting talk, unwholesome, harmful talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, for edifying, for constructing, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, Paul helps us a lot right here. He gives us a filter of understanding when, where, and with whom to discuss certain things. And this has been immensely practical for my wife and I over the last seven years when we first realized this is here in Scripture. So I encourage you to write this down. I believe it's extremely helpful. So when considering uh, whether or not you need to confront someone, Paul says, here's a filter. First, will what I say build up? Will what I say build up? In other words, it's not enough to merely deconstruct, to point out the errors, the flaws, how something is broken and ruined. Will what I say offer improvement, in other words? Will it build up? Is it good for? Will what I have to say encourage and provoke to love and good works? Like Hebrews 10, 24 would say. All right, so secondly, does what I have to say fit the occasion? Does what I have to say fit the occasion? And I've got a few under this to kind of unpack what I mean by fits the occasion and what I believe Paul says here, what he means. In other words, is this the best time and best place and most appropriate season to bring this up? Is this the best time, place, and season to bring this up? Does it fit the occasion? Am I the right person to communicate this? Does it fit the occasion? Or is there someone else that would be a better person to say this? Does it fit the occasion? Is this absolutely necessary? Does it fit the occasion? In other words, is this merely preferential or is this of certain importance? Is it vital? If I didn't say it, would something be missing that's significant? Does it fit the occasion? And then thirdly, lastly, will what I have to say give grace to all who hear it or hear about it? Will what I have to say give grace to all who hear it or hear about it? Will what I have to say allow people to rest in the gospel? Will they be lifted up? Will there be burdens removed? Will they be able to <sighs> exhale? Will they receive refreshment? Paul says, man, if it makes it through this grid, speak away. We need this. Friends, there is certainly a way to address one another. We need prudence. We need wisdom in regards to best communicate. And God will help us. All we have to do is ask. 
He says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Closing up this portion of his letter, Paul, he's urging Christians to do anything, to not do anything that would quench or limit or grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And so in taking in greater context, remember he said, give no place to the devil, give no opportunity. He's essentially telling us here that live in such a way that the devil has no place at all and live in such a way where you give the Holy Spirit all the room in the world. After all, he's the one of the Trinity who's responsible for keeping us Christians sealed for the day of redemption until we are with him in paradise. Verse 31, let all this animosity, anger, resentment, harshness, let all this bitterness and the wrath. Now this wrath is outburst. It's an outburst of, of rage. And what that is, Wrath in this context, in this, the Greek word that he's using here, refers to essentially it's the fruit of pent up, pinned down bitterness. Let all bitterness and the fruit of bitterness festering, getting infected, devouring who you are, this outburst. Let this bitterness and this wrath, this anger and this clamor, clamor is the shouting out, just bursting out. Let it be put away from you. And this word put away here means to terminate, to kill. It's as if it's what you do to a wounded animal who's beyond healing. You put it away. You put it down. Put this away along with all malice. And malice is interesting. I used to always see it as just hate, but in studying a little bit more, it's something that could be virtuous that's twisted to bringing about an evil and wicked end. It's perverted. It takes something that is good and it twists it, perverts it, and it takes it to some place that's evil that it wasn't intended to go there. Put these away from, from who you are. That's your old self. Remember, this isn't who you are anymore. This, this is your old self and it's been killed and it is to die every day. Christian, you are to have a funeral every day. You are to lay that old man in the grave every day. Remind yourself, as Paul reminds us in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. That's funeral talk. I'm dead. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, put these things away and put on this new man with these new passions, these new desires, these new interests and be kind to one another. Be compassionate and tenderhearted, forgiving one another as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Tender hearts for one another. He says essentially, and he wraps this with a hinge verse in five verse one, therefore mimic God, imitate God as his beloved children. Tenderhearted, not hard-hearted, not harsh, but open, vulnerable, and gentle, believing the best in one another, quickly offering all you can to assist one another in and through this life as we press into faith in the gospel, forgiving one another. So this doesn't just tell us, it commands us to not hold a grudge. There is no place for a grudge in the life of the Christian. 
After all, this is rooted and compared to the forgiveness that we have in Christ. He holds no grudge. It's been perfectly, completely forgiven. Tossed as far as the east is from the west. Gone. Forgive like this, he says. This is gospel-motivated forgiveness. Don't merely forgive because it's moral, because it's less burdening, uh, it's nice, it's good. Forgive because you have been forgiven for a whole lot more. Practically speaking, allow the reality and experience of your vertical forgiveness between yourselves and God Allow that to fuel the reality and experience of your horizontal forgiveness of one another. It doesn't alleviate the pain. It doesn't alleviate the harm. But it places it in perspective when you compare the great sins that you've been forgiven of and the amount of sin that you've been forgiven of. Let that enable pressing into forgiving one another. Family, there's no other way. There's absolutely no shortcuts that we have here. There's no fast and easy way to maturing as Christians as we should. There's no shortcut in discipleship. There's no shortcut in holiness. There's no shortcut with unity with one another. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to work in your heart, hearts in these ways. Ask the Holy Spirit to allow you to experience this new man becoming strengthened, becoming stronger. And, I'll, and ask him for the power to see this old man weaken and, and, and shrink more and more every day. Ask God for holiness. Ask him for humility. Ask him for wisdom with your words. Ask him to help you with your chirping. Just a busybody with your gossip and starting up divisive little discussions and here and there over preferential things. Ask him to silence that. Ask him for the ability to, uh, for you to experience the grace needed to, to, to give grace with your words, to give building up and good for to come from your mouth and through your actions. Ask God for depth, for wisdom, for prudence, for the ability to love people genuinely and forgive people. Ask him to make you a humble and thankful person. Pray for these things. Ask God to teach you what it means to become this. Not, not going and doing things more, but changing your heart so that it's coming from a, it's a natural reflex from a growing understanding of who you are in Christ and what he's enabled you now to do through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's becoming more. It's not doing more. Don't go do more until you understand what it means to become something more, until you understand what God has done in your heart. Find that, and then you'll have all the proper motivation in the world to press in to pursuing obedience in the text that we have before us here. For those who are outside of Christ, man, Jesus loves you. He gave himself up for you, Galatians 2.20. He gave himself up for you. And you must be reconciled to God. There is only one way for this to happen. It's not about you cleaning yourself up and getting rid of these bad habits and starting these new habits. If it were only that, Jesus wouldn't have to come to us. Ask God for faith to believe Jesus. Jesus came to live a perfect life for you because you are a sinner. We all are sinners. 
And the Bible tells us that we fall short of the glory of God. We're not perfect. We're not righteous. Our sin has caused a great chasm. Jesus came to live the life necessary to counteract our lives of sin. And not only this, but he chose to suffer in our place through his death. And he absorbed the wrath that you deserve. You deserve this wrath. I deserve this wrath. And God dumps all this wrath down towards you. And the gospel says that Jesus takes it upon himself. He owns it to where there's not even a drop. There's not even a mark. There's, there, there's nothing left for you to experience in regards to condemnation and shame. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None, no shame, no condemnation, nothing to fear. Jesus did that for you. If you would just believe, well, I can't believe. Would you tell God that? God, I, I can't believe. I can't believe. I, I, I read it. I hear it. It doesn't make sense. I can't, I can't make myself do this. I know. If you could have, I would tell you to. I know you can't. I couldn't. The Holy Spirit does this. Ask the Holy Spirit to do this in your heart. Ask him to create a hunger and a passion desire for his word. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to save you. Ask him for a rebirthing. Ask him to be born again. Call out to him for saving faith. It's not in yourself. It is a gift and God gives it. If you would just ask, ask, ask. For those who are Christians here this morning, you are called to live a holy life. Leave the dragon suit alone. Don't get back in the casket. You've been raised to a new life. Live as if you are free. Live as if you have been made alive. Stop acting like a zombie when you've been made alive. Ask for this lifestyle to become more and more comfortable to wear every day. Put on then this new life. I know it's uncomfortable at first. It's like shoes. Don't expect your shoes to get broken into if you just wear them two hours on a Sunday. Walk in these things every day. Take on this new man. Take on this lifestyle. Commit yourself to Christ. If anyone wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. You've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not you who live. It's Christ who lives in you. Live as if someone who has been truly changed and made alive. This is our calling, and he provides the power to do this. Let's do it. Let's ask for his help. Let's ask for proper motivations. I believe this type of change and comfort in our new clothes, so to speak, happens when we're in prayer daily, when we're in the word daily, when we're in Christian community and we're telling other people about the hope that's in Christ, it gets more comfortable. Church family, Christians, that's the old stuff. Put it away. Die. Let's really live, okay? Now it's time for communion. Communion. We're going to take a moment in our communion here as we do every week. And we're going to remind ourselves, Jesus said when he was with the disciples in the upper room, 
He says, I want you to remember me when you do this. What else will we think about during communion? A million other things. And Jesus knew that. That's why he said, hey guys, when you do this, remember me. We're going to take bread that represents the body of Christ and we're going to dip it in the juice or the wine that represents his blood that he poured out for us as he was the sacrifice once and for all for us to be reconciled to God. And we will remember his work. Let's remember his faithfulness. Let's remember his promises. One of those final promises is is when he said that he's going to send a helper, his very spirit to us to be with us. And it's better for him to leave and send his spirit than for him to stay there in the flesh. So as we take this and we take it in, let's remind ourselves we've got the Holy Spirit living within us that's working his will in us, changing us. So as we take this into ourselves, Christians, let's remind ourselves to submit to him willingly, to pursue him genuinely, to live out what it is he's called us to do. Because we're members of one another and we all have gifts. We looked at last week. We can become the best piece of the body here at the Axis by pressing more and more into remembering Christ and asking his spirit to work in and through us. Let's do this and let's remember him as we take communion this morning. Let me pray for this time. Jesus, Lord, thank you for speaking so mightily through, through Paul so direct, so pastoral, so concerning. Thank you for this. Lord, I've needed this. I pray that this has been uh, a refreshment and, and help. I pray this has been giving grace to my friends here. Lord, uh, for those who are outside of you and Lord, who are drifting in the futility of their mind, not, not having the direction of the truth, would you save them? Would you allow them escape from that, that futile existence of thinking, Lord? And would you save them to yourselves and enlighten them to the, to the truth? And let them see you for who you really are. Let them see themselves for who they really are. And Lord, if, I know that if you do that, they're going to sprint towards you. They're going to fall towards you. They're going, they're going to make their way to you because they will know they need rescue. So show them who they are. Show them who you are and save them this morning. Lord, thank you for your work that you've done through the preached word, the sung word. And now, Lord, we ask you to work through your sacrament of your table. God, I ask that you add your special and unique blessing to this time as we remember you.